I have been thinking about some of the aspects of this particular passage, though not necessarily tied to this passage, for the last couple of months. And it's with a, this overarching theme of where is God in times of disillusionment that I myself have been grappling with. And so with a sense of eagerness, I bring forward Psalm 73. And you're familiar with the Psalms. In fact, there's 150 different Psalms in the book that we called our canon scripture, the book of Psalms. And this one is a little different than most of them. It is a wisdom psalm, but you'll see that some of the words in this psalm are a little disturbing. They'll shake your core and you'll say, well, yeah, but what about the easy stuff? Like just praise him and thank you God for all that you have done for me. No, this tends to shake us where we're at. So let's stop. Let's read it together in this moment. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, I tend to be a feeler. I can come to church on a Sunday morning and you'll know exactly what I'm feeling. I am happy. I am sad. Life is going easy and carefree. You know exactly what I'm feeling. And I know it too. I can't hide what's going on. And in fact, there are times in my life when I say, well, I'd rather just not have those feelings right now. So what do I do? I don't watch Old Yeller. I come to the part in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, the fight scene? You know what I'm talking about at the bar? And then I'm like, well, from here on out, I better not watch anymore because I know what's going to come. A whole lot of feelings and emotions, and I'm just going to be wearing them all day long. Now, counselors will say, feelings are normal. They're natural, and you have to let them out. 
And for people like me, well, they come out pretty easy. You know exactly what's going on. Asaph lets his feelings out in this psalm. I read this as a type of personal testimony of what he was going through in this time. If we look at the very beginning, if you have your Bibles open again, open to Psalm 73. If you look at the very top, it'll say a Psalm of Asaph. But what do we know about him? What do we really know about him? Well, offhand, you know that there's 150 different Psalms in the book of, or the collection of Psalms. King David wrote many of them. You know who was a close Second, Asaph. In fact, we credit him with writing 12 of those Psalms, 73 being one of them. And there's a lot that we can learn as we look at his testimony, but also a lot that we can learn as we think about the other Psalms that Asaph had written. So what is this Psalm really about? It's about perseverance. Perseverance, that is holding on to that which is immovable. Perseverance. Holding on to the facts about God as revealed in Scripture. Perseverance. Forsaking feelings because you have decided to hold on to something that is firm and does not shift with the wind. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that as we assemble for worship this morning, that we would come open and transparent before you. I pray that you would change our hearts so that you would be the one thing that we desire most. Reorient our faith, that we might cling to you more than anything else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm reveals a type of personal crisis in Asaph's life. It gave him feelings of disillusionment and almost led him to the place of deep isolation where he nearly renounced his faith. But in the end, God leads Asaph out of this crisis and to a place where he can actually hold on to God. Asaph ultimately finds that after going through this personal crisis, that he is stronger for it in the end. According to 1 Chronicles, Asaph, as I look towards our, our choir, according to 1 Chronicles, Asaph was King David's worship leader. He played the cymbals. He is, as I said, credited for writing 12 different psalms. He led God's people in worship and in prayer and in song. He was a man of God who was a mature believer and regularly exercised his faith. As some of the other psalms reveal, Asaph was a righteous man. He loved God. He knew the nation of Israel and he knew the story of his people. Back to Jacob and before. For reference, look at Psalm 78. 
He knew it, he believed it, he sung it, and he led others to do the same. So why is Asaph's psalm important? Because it recognizes the fallen condition in God's people. And they would come and sing this psalm together so that they would find hope in times when they're feeling disillusioned. Larry, I'm going to borrow on your skills as one who pushes buttons. Bringing up verse 1, and the numbers aren't on the screen, but I'll read it out loud, and hopefully some of you will be able to look at verse 1 with me. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. This is a standalone verse. The commentators all say the same thing. You can just take this verse, put an exclamation point on it, and almost like a mic drop. That is something that'll preach. God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. I can almost hear an amen. Asaph believed this to be true. Yes, <laughs> God is good. God is good to those who are pure in heart. He put his faith in that statement. I put my faith in that statement. And then we move to verse number two, and it begins with, but. <laughs> Whoa. But. Why would Asaph be willing to be so vulnerable? He could have continued to go on and say what everybody wanted to hear. And yet he was open and vulnerable. And he says, but, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Something did not equate in Asaph's mind. On the one hand, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And he says, but I see the prosperity of the wicked. Something did not make sense. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but I see around me the prosperity of the wicked. I don't know what that means. I don't know if people were selling bacon in the streets and they were prospering, making lots of money. I don't. But in Asaph's heart, he was disillusioned because he held on to verse one. And then as he looked around him, he said, this does not make sense. Looking again at verse three, the wicked prosper. Verse 4, they are never hungry. Verse 5, they don't experience trouble or hardship. Verses 6 through 9, they can do and say whatever they want and they don't have to fear that God will punish them. Oh my gosh. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that way? Someone at work can have an affair and get promoted. 
Do you ever feel that way? I work as a chaplain in a hospice setting, and you know who are praised? The chaplains who don't use the name of Jesus. Wait, that's not fair. In verse 12, instead of punishment, the wicked seem to just get more and more and more. It almost seems as if the wicked grow more in wealth and stature, and those who cling to the promises of God, those who sacrifice, those who hold on to their faith, they are the ones to lose out. And that is the great divide, the disillusionment that he feels. So he could not reason in his heart this separation. And he began to consider letting go of his faith in favor of something else that he thought, oh, it's easier to grasp. And this event in his life was the testing of his faith. I believe that his testing came about in actually two different ways. Two ways that this text reveals to me. The first was a misunderstanding of verse 1. Asaph was tempted to read verse 1 as a type of prosperity message. You know? Did you catch it? Any of us can read verse 1 as a type of prosperity message if we don't take the context of the Bible as a whole. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Wilbur got a new Lexus. All I need to do is be pure in heart and God will be good to me too. The pure in heart becomes defined by the object of God's love and grace, that is us, his children, rather than the source of love himself, and that is God. To be pure in heart, we're not going to find it in this lifetime. The only real example of having purity in heart is Christ himself, and we are called all of our lifetime to work and to strive and to be faithful and to hold on to that promise as God continues to sanctify, sanctify us until we are in his presence, the one whose heart is truly pure. Do you believe that God is good to you because you have a home? Because you have a spouse? Because you have children? What if God took your spouse from you? Would God still be good? Can you say to the couple that's been trying to have kids for years and years but have been unsuccessful, can you say to them that God is good? How does it feel for them to come into worship on Mother's Day? Can they say God is good? I am so thankful that Asaph is willing to be real with us. Here's my question for all of us, and myself including. 
Are we holding on to a type of prosperity gospel? I don't think any of us would really in our right mind and in this moment, I don't think any of us would ever think of our faith in those terms. But if it could happen to a mature believer like Asaph, if it could happen to someone who was appointed and anointed by King David, then it can happen to us. Peter will remind us in the New Testament that the devil wants to devour us. I'll turn there. This is 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood. In our lifetime, we are going to fall into temptation and we are going to be tempted to let go of the things that we are supposed to hold on to, thinking about that there is something else for us. It can happen to Lusa, Asaph. It could happen to any of us today. The enemy would love to destroy your testimony, your marriage, and your place of fellowship. That's what he would love to do. I have a very personal story um, from when I served a church in California. I served with a really neat man named Lance Pagel. Lance um, met uh, his to-be bride in college. She was on the volleyball team. They were both charismatic. As I said, he led worship. Everybody loved them, Lance and Natalie. He got married and then he entered into ministry. He volunteered at our church and they seemed to have everything together. Everybody was excited for them. And then the news that they were pregnant. Oh my gosh. Their family was excited. You know, their extended family. The church was excited. And the people in the community were excited for them. And then the news came. Oh, but wait. There's more. It's twins. <laughs> and now the showers. And now the parties. And the fellowship. And the time together. This is great. It couldn't happen to a better couple. Lance and Natalie. And then about month number seven, we get the phone call in the church office. Natalie is rushed to the hospital. Our church of about, oh, I don't know, 100, 120. We began a 24-hour vigil praying for Natalie and for the twins. Guys, all right, so I'm getting a little emotional in part because those memories are really very very real for me. Um, also, I didn't sleep much last night. Just think about the sermon. <laughs> but the community, our church, and other churches. See, Lance's parents were elders at another church. And so they were praying. And now other people in the community were praying for these babies. God, if it be your will, spare them. Delight, take delight in being good to Lance and Natalie. 
And when things went from bad to worse, the babies were born premature. There was a group of about 15 of us that went to the hospital. And I remember our senior pastor taking one that was just minutes from death as we were all together, just praying, praying for the baby, for the couple. And God delighted to take the baby. And a couple of days later, God took the other one. Lance and Natalie were hurt. But Lance fell apart. Here was a righteous man that everybody loved. And he fell away. People would try to call, hey, I want to bring you food. He would yell at them. People would try to be a support to the family. And he was mad. It didn't make any sense. While I was working for the church, I was part-time, and then I went to full-time, and mind you, Lance was still volunteering, and he never said, hey, what about me? I think at the most, he might have said, you know, it might be nice to have a new set of drums or a drum shield. Lance, he was an incredible man of God. And he said, not to me, but to our senior pastor, this is not the God that I serve. He left ministry, isolated himself from the church, and I didn't get to talk to him for many years. Leah and I and our, our family, we moved out to Missouri for seminary, and then I, every once in a while, I go online and I'll watch the sermons and see what's happening at the old church. And Lance's back. <laughs> so the story has a happy ending. Lance and Natalie, they return to the church and they're leading once again in worship. And I don't know what happened in that time in between when he forsook his faith, when he let go of what he believed and he was at least flirting with something else. Disillusionment is very real. And I cannot find fault in Lance for feeling like God abandoned him. For all I could see, Lance was living an exemplary life that was pleasing to our Lord. He had a modest home. He volunteered at the church. He gave of himself and his time for many. And yet, wait, wasn't he pure in heart? But... This makes no sense. How did Lance feel? Like God abandoned him? Grief? Loss? These are all feelings that we will process and go through. And in this community of faith, we will do those things together. Lord willing, we will be open and transparent with one another. And we will go through these things together. If we abandon this fellowship, or if we say, I need to keep these difficult things to myself, I don't want anybody else to know, well then, 
No. Part of the reason that we exist in the body is that our pain and our sorrows is received by many, and in that way it is lessened. And I also believe that the influence and the power of the evil one to want to overcome you and your faith is also minimized. The power be belongs to our Lord through prayer and through fellowship. Did you ever think that one of us comes to assemble and worship on any given Sunday, but we don't all have the same feelings in that moment? One might come and sit with a sense of excitement. Oh, I can't wait. I hope, I hope we play that song. Oh, and someone else would be really excited, but then someone else is coming in and all they can think of is, why God? Why are things so hard right now? I want this in my life. I want this in my home. I want this in my church. I want this for my spouse. And yet this is what you've given to me? Campus Crusade um, helped me to orient my thinking about facts, about my faith, but also about my feelings. And that's very important for this feeler. You see, Crusade or crew says that it is the facts, the things that you hold on to, those are the things that are going to lead your faith. We don't believe in something that is not real. We do believe in something that's empty, and that is an empty tomb. We believe in the facts of the matter, and that leads our faith. And that faith helps to orient our feelings so that even in difficult times, we don't say, well, I'm just feeling this right now. Instead, we look back to what the facts are. When things are difficult, God remains good. He remains with us. God is the one that remains faithful. He is there with us. I'd like to beg your indulgence for a second. It seems like every time I preach, I have a little sidebar, and, and this is one of those moments. And for those of you who are visiting, well, welcome. I am glad you're here. I see that you're here, and I'm going to just let you know a couple of things really quick. A couple of months ago, our pastor, one who we loved, Pastor Jordan, read from here that he was going to leave. I don't know about some of you, but... Bam, my heart was broken. I felt disillusioned. I loved his sermons. <laughs> I mean, really. And I've heard a lot of sermons in my <clears throat> 50 plus years. <laughs> I felt a little disillusioned. Sad. Well, what now? What really now for this church and for me? What now? Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not judging Pastor Jordan, and I'm not inviting any of us to judge him. What I'm saying, though, is to be aware of your feelings 
at this moment of time. Our feelings are not to be the thing that guides us out of this time. Instead, the thing that we hold on to is indeed the chief cornerstone. It is Jesus himself that we hold on to. He is the good shepherd and he will lead this flock. Some of you may be considering moving on to another church. May God bless you. I mean that. But don't go to another church because of a feeling. Don't do it because you think that it will somehow be easier for you or for your family. Some of you are considering staying here at Highlands. And actually, I am looking forward to this material that we're going to pick up after church. Again, some of you are considering staying here at Highlands. May God bless you. But don't stay here because of a feeling. Don't do it because you think that it will be somehow easier to stay. To go because you think that it's easier because of a feeling or to stay because you think that it's easier is consumerism. Our spiritual appetite is not based on a consumeristic mentality. We are called to be in connection with God's people. Your, listen to this, Highlands. Your God is good. And he is deeply interested in blessing you. God is keenly interested in your worship. But God is not thinking about how moving or staying is going to make you feel. <laughs> He's not thinking what's going to be easier for you. God is, however, thinking about your sanctification and the sanctification of this body. God is good, and he wants you to be more and more like his son. So, to stay or to go. But do it because God has called you for a purpose, and in this way, fight consumerism. Respond to a call that's on your, on your life and on your family's life, rather than a feeling. Think about using your spiritual gifts. As you're reading this material, maybe something comes to you and you are thinking about, you know, this is encouraging to me. I wonder if it might be encouraging to my brother or to my sister. Maybe God has given you a gift of encouragement. Text, call, use your gifts in this body because we are called to be together. Maybe your gift is teaching. Use your gifts in this body. And hey, with your neighbors. <laughs> I need to take us back to the text for a moment. I mentioned that Asaph, his testing came about in two different ways. The first was a misunderstanding of verse one. He believed in that type of prosperity message. The second way that Asaph's testing came about was when his eyes began to look at the world around him. He began to think more about himself and more about his own desires. And I can read it. Larry, thank you. I'll just read it. Verse 3. Asaph said, I was envious of the arrogant. That's his feeling. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in verse 14. In vanity, I kept my heart clean. His eyes are back onto himself. 
Remember, he was in full-time ministry. All of his function throughout the week is to minister to those that are around him and to help them connect with the living one true God. And yet, what was his eyes doing? People, the devil is seeking to devour. Asaph saw the prosperity or the easy life and he wanted it for himself. His problem was not that God was good, but that Asaph said, I want more for myself. Somehow Asaph was tempted to believe that his God was not sufficient and that he needed to let go of something here to be able to grasp and hold on to something else because he needed more for himself. Now, I don't know, but I kind of wonder, was there a voice in Asaph's ear that said, Asaph, you deserve more. You deserve the easy life. It's time, <laughs> it's time to go and enjoy the spoils of the wicked. Asaph, just let go and hold on to something else. Gosh, this reminds me of the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4. When Satan took Jesus to the mount and he showed Jesus the different cities and all the riches and Satan said the lie, all this will be yours if you just worship me. Guys, if it happened to Christ, if it happened to Asaph, it will happen to us. Now Jesus had the perfect response and Asaph himself was Still getting along as only a man can. Do you know what he said back? Verse 15. It's at the very end. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. Or in other words, my words. If I had renounced my faith and said that it is vanity just to keep my heart clean and pure. Then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, Asaph's eyes are not on himself and they begin to look at someone else. Now, and his heart is somehow soft towards children. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph ultimately became aware and concerned for the faith in others, and especially the children in his community. Maybe Asaph heard another voice in his ear in those dark days. Asaph, before you give up your position, think about the children. Before you renounce your faith, Think about what that will mean to the community. Hold on to what is true and what is steadfast and what remains. Do not listen to the feelings in your hearts. Highland Church, our biggest decisions in life do not operate in a vacuum. They have consequences upon others and upon their children. Your car breaks down and you don't understand why you should give money to the church. You reason to yourself, well, 
Jordan's gone. Why should I continue to go to church? I can still worship God at the boathouse on the weekends. Why should I stand up for the gospel of work? Because, well, if I just renounce or just slide, then I'll probably get promoted. Why should I continue to be faithful in my marriage? I deserve to be happy and fulfilled. The reason that you give to church in offering, the reason that you continue to go to church and fellowship, the reason that you stand up for your faith and continue to be faithful in your marriage is because others and their children see it. You are a living stone, an example. You are a part of the reason that we are in fellowship together. You are called, Highlands, to be a type of salt and light to the world. But remember, your light shines brighter in community. The salt has flavor, but it is even better when a whole bunch is together. Do not let go of your first love. When your eyes become disillusioned, hold on to what you know. When your coworker says that there are more truths to reach heaven, hold on to the source of all truth. When you think to yourself that there is an easier way, recall that Jesus is the way. And when you feel like letting go and giving up, remember that the God of this universe will not let go of you. For he is the author, the perfecter, and the sustainer of our faith. Amen.